0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Larry Kerwin, author of the new book, Rockaway Blue, a novel. Larry Kerwin was the leader of the New York-based Irish political rock band Black 47 for 25 years. He is the author of five previous books, including Liverpool Fantasy, Rock in the Bronx, and Green Suede Shoes, as well as 16 plays and musicals, including Hard Times and Rebel in the Soul. Kerwin also hosts Celtic Crush, a popular radio show on Sirius XM. We spoke to Larry about his own personal experiences during 9-11 and how they informed his new novel, how his book tells the story of regular people who were impacted by the tragedy, and how New York City has been transformed in the 20 years since the towers fell. Hello, Larry, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan, it's good to be there. Yeah, yeah, glad to have you on and talking about your new novel, Rockaway Blue. It's out now, it's on, under our Three Hills imprint and it's, it's got a lot going on. It's a, it's a novel about New York, terrorism, the New York Police Department, the Inner Life of Irish America, and it's also about American history from Vietnam through the Iraq invasion. Tell us, tell us before we jump into the book, tell us about your experiences in New York City during 9-11. This is a 9-11 era book during 9-11 and its aftermath and how that informed your writing.
1: Well, I live um, just above uh, Canal Street in lower Manhattan. so. I was kind of almost on the scene of the crime, as it were. I actually heard the plane coming, and uh, I was a big Mets follower at the time, and I was following the the Mets result, and I actually put my head down on the table. It seemed like it was just going to crash into my own building. Mm -hmm. So I ran up onto the roof, and there it was. It was just the most stunning scene. And then, of course, the other one came. Uh, So then I went down because I just went down Broadway. I figured, let me go as far down as I can to see it because at that point, the police and everything hadn't really barricaded anything off or the army hadn't arrived. Uh, so I went down and uh, I got down quite far. And then the smoke, uh, it just felt really unhealthy. And there were so many people running up. So I turned around and went back and, you know, it, It struck everybody in different ways at that time, but I was a member of Black 47 and we were the house band of New York City. So I I knew straight away that um, quite a number of friends would be dead during this. But then um, it was necessary to get people back into the center of the city. It's, It's something that's forgotten about now because people just didn't go out at that point and people left town. Uh, so we had uh, a regular gig in a place called Connolly's up on 47th Street, and uh, we started doing it again the following Saturday, and it was the only place in town that there was um, music, and a lot of the first responders knew we were there, so the place was packed, and uh, the gigs every Saturday night were just so intense, um, partly because nobody knew who was dead and who was alive. So we were always kind of watching the door and then someone would come through the door and there would be this, yeah, he's alive, she's alive. It was that feeling with us because we didn't know the names of all our fans or anything but it was the same thing in the crowd. It was like, they would rush over and hug the person because nobody knew. So uh, then we, we played so much around that time and, played around the country and people would bring pictures of their the their family who had been fans of the band and asked us to sing their particular song. you they'd look at the picture and think, oh my God, I don't know this person or I do know them. And, and I wasn't sure which was worse sometimes. So it was a searing kind of um, uh, experience. And, uh, I didn't actually write ending for quite a while for that year, and I always wrote. Um, and then I set out to write an album called, Black, uh, called New York Town about the city before it and the city right after it. What, what had changed in the city? And I think it was that album that set off the whole idea of Rockaway Blue. Uh, it had a different name. It had a, a name from a Yeats poem uh, first, and um, A Raving Autumn. And I wrote it about 10 years ago, and then I just didn't want to go out and promote it. It just felt too raw, and I lost some close friends, and it just seemed wrong to be promoting it. And then about, a, about two years ago, I, I have a show on Sirius XM called Celtic Crush, And I guess it was around September, and I started telling the story of the book. And uh, I got an email from a listener to the show. His name was Dean Smith. And he was the head of um, Cornell University Publishing at the time. And I think we'd known each other slightly. And he said, that book sounds interesting. Do you have a copy? Could you send it to me? And I said, yeah, sure, (laughs) take a read, (laughs) because I'm not reading it. And uh, he wrote back and said, I really like it. Would you like to have us publish it? And that was it. It was just one of those strange occurrences in your life.
0: Well, we're happy that Dean sent that email and that we're publishing your book. That's fantastic. Um, Now you had mentioned uh, many uh, many friends that were lost, and you didn't know when you were playing if some of your fans were coming in, uh, if they were or were not coming in. Uh, There is a uh, you mentioned a, a close friend. Uh, Michael Judge, who did pass away in the tragedy, and tell us a little bit about his story and how he inspired your novel.
1: And the, the book is is dedicated to Michael, Father Michael, and to Richie Muldowney. He, he was a New York Fire Department uh, man. And um, yeah, I miss the two of them still, it's, it's strange. And that's one of the other reasons why I wrote the book is there's so much pain still around the city and around the, particularly around the tri-state area um, about this event. You know, the, it stopped being reported about and everything now, but the people who lost people, particularly family members, um, yeah, they're still hurting. And I wanted to tell their story uh, rather than the general story about it or the academic story or the historical or the political side of it, just what it was like to be a person who lost someone. Now, Father Michael, uh, man, he he was just a very uh, unusual person. When you were talking to him, you were his sole object. He had no side vision. It was like he was totally um, locked into you. And in many ways, he was a guy, I think, who had suffered a lot in his own life and was interested to see if, if there was some way he could help you. And uh, he helped so many people, including me. Um, He was just a calm presence. And he was um, enduringly vain on top of everything else. He was totally coiffed. And um, even though he was wearing the sutan and the cowl and everything, it was almost like he was a, a male model when he was there with you so you couldn't take your eyes off and thinking this guy is is just one of the most unusual people I've met and one of the most humane and and when you were talking to him it was all about you and that's a strange thing in a bar in particular because he used to come see Black 47. I'm not even sure he liked the music, but he liked the buzz that was around. He liked to be at the center of things and and to decipher what's going on that's at the center of this scene. And then he liked being there amongst people. Um, just an unusual character, and oftentimes, and, and I'm not um, I'm not very religious at this point in my life, but. If things go wrong, I often think of Michael. He has, whether it's a mystical thing or just he's a calming presence to remember. And uh, when you do that, things start to go right in your life again when you think about him. (laughs) So I I hear the same stories about him from other people. And I think I was blessed in a way to have him as a friend and to know him.
0: Wow, wow. Thanks for sharing that. Here's a short excerpt of Black 47's song about Michael Judge, entitled Michael. In New York City,
2: I made my home. I love the streets, the very stones. Kid for my comrades. Cherish my friends Loved all beginnings Had no time for ends The city streets Are full of woe I saw suffering where I'd go I did my best To console and heal Ready to with full dignity. I never saw a reason to hate someone who thinks different than each one has this anointed place and the love reflected in their god's face
0: within the novel you have uh, three central characters detective sergeant jimmy murphy Yusuf, Ibrahim, and the city of New York itself is a character. Tell us more about their roles in your novel. Well, from being a playwright,
1: uh, I go with the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. From character comes story, and I'm always surprised because I read a lot. And uh, in fact, I'm reading Shuggie Bain right now, and that glorious, a little depressing Scottish novel, but the characters he builds are so incredibly real in it. Um, And that's one of the things I set out to do no matter what I'm doing is before I write anything, I write, write, write about the character, everything I can think about. And that character has to be real to me so I can see them and I can feel them. And they're always flawed characters because we're all flawed. So Detective Sergeant Jimmy Murphy is one of my favorite characters I've ever created. Um, He went to Vietnam at 19, regular kind of a guy, and when he was over there he realized you can't believe anyone, you can't believe anything that's coming from authority. And he gets in an incident over there and he kills someone and he can't get over it. Um, Comes back to Uh, Rockaway joins the NYPD, and is kind of a lone gun. Um, He's trusted, but he doesn't play the game as it were, and he doesn't want to. Uh, His Vietnam experience has got him that way, and he marries his uh, childhood sweetheart. They have two sons, and his eldest son, Brian, is an overachiever, and goes to Regis High School, which is the top catholic high school of new york and goes to georgetown and can write his ticket anywhere he likes because he's top of the class but he joins the nypd and they kind of give him a hard time in there but he's pretty brilliant works his way up and passes his father in rank so by the age of 30 he's he's a lieutenant and that kind of rankles between them they've always had a kind of a difficult situation and He gets killed in 9-11 and that sets the whole story off. Uh, Yosef Ibrahim is a friend of Jimmy's and um, he's an Egyptian American, really well educated uh, and runs for falafel partners and has a family too. And he becomes involved in the plot in a way, I won't tell you because it would give away the story. Um, so it's just interesting having an Irish Catholic from Rockaway and a fairly orthodox Muslim person from Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, and their interaction in these affairs that are going on in the in the plot. And the third character is New York City, and New York City has always been a character in my songs and often in plays and in novels since I came here, because it's just a really interesting city. It's a city that's always flowing, new immigrants coming in, settled immigrants moving to the suburbs. So it's always different and you can find anything you want in New York City. So from the minute I got here, I went to live on the Lower East Side and I ended up on East Third Street and Avenue B, which was the center of heroin dealing in New York City. So uh, you're right into all this drama straight away and being a dramatist, I just, like to bring it on into myself. And then being in Black 47, you get a view of New York because we played in every neighborhood and then we're on, you know, Leno Letterman O'Brien. So we're really well known. And then we're taking the brand of New York across the country as kind of representatives. So um, yeah, New York has always been a character in what I do and it's, a big character in Rockaway Blue. And Rockaway itself is a huge character because, you know, when I got here from Ireland, I was living on the Lower East Side, and someone said, if you take the A train, go to the end of it out in Queens, there's a beach out there. So this is in the 70s, mid 70s. So I started to head out in the A train on Sunday afternoons, and there were these Irish saloons in there with people playing accordions and fiddles. But they weren't Irish people, they were Irish Americans who had settled there a long time ago and I became close to that community. And then um, when Black 47 became a hit, Rockaway was kind of Black 47 country. So I wanted to set it there because I'd never really heard of a story being set there. And yet it's one of the most unique places in New York those are the characters
0: nice nice yeah I, I want to go visit Rockaway after after reading the book it's it sounds like an amazing place and and your novel tells a story of you know regular people who were impacted by 9-11 particularly the folks in the Rockaway uh, neighborhood um, what lessons do you hope your book will bring to readers in Rockaway as well as New York City in general and beyond
1: well one thing I got away from in being a songwriter is to be careful about giving lessons to anyone, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Deal with the characters, get your set of characters in there and put them in a situation. And that's what readers really uh, react to because you identify with the characters. Uh, Even sometimes you mightn't even like them, but that's what a good character is. So I really wanted to explore in a way what it was like to lose someone close. I mean, I lost Father Michael and lost Richie Muldowney and many, many fans of Black 47, but I didn't have that, <clears throat> that blood connection, but I knew a lot of people who did. And I, was, I used to just watch them and think, how do you get over something like this? And, The other thing that, oddly enough, and my wife just brought it up yesterday when she was explaining the book to someone, because I I told her about it, but I'd forgotten. After 9-11, if you remember, the New York Times would do um, little bios of maybe about 30 people each day who had died during it. And, of course, we used to scour those, because then you would find a face and you would get the name finally because when you're in a band, a popular band, you know, faces are coming at you all the time. You remember the faces, but it's very hard to forget the names. And, you know, it was just strange reading about people I knew. And, And I don't mean this in a kind of dismissive way, but the bios all tended to be the same. This guy was a great family man. He... Was the coach of the b- baseball team? He did this. He did that, and he, you, you'd have a different picture. And this is the guy I used to hang out with at the bar, you know. And he was the, the life of the party, or he was he had a vicious sense of humor. You would put people down, and I was like, "Whoa! <laughs> I'm so glad they have a nice picture." And I have a totally different yeah. memory, and. That kind of inspired me too, because these people were more than their bios. They were full of life, you know? There was that feeling in New York before 9-11, anything is possible. You know, the stock market was doing well. There was more money around. um, Wages were going up and everything. And it was just this feeling. I used to call the people And not in a political way. Clinton's children, you know, there was this optimism about America at the time, and then, wow, it got destroyed in that minute. A lot of people moved out of New York, but I used to think, you know, it was roughly twenty-seven hundred who died in the towers and around that area, and I used to think their spirits left, and it was definitely a void for quite a while. And then of course, New York is irrepressible. New people came in and a new form of New York happened, which was a good form, but it wasn't what it was because the optimism had gone. Um, The innocence had gone. There was that awareness, you know, we've been attacked for the first time on our home ground and that destroyed something. And uh, I was trying to capture all that feeling um, because that, that wasn't captured in books or in newspapers. I'm sure the people writing felt it, but I didn't feel that that was ever really explored. What happened to the city on that one day? And then there was a the whole thing about, because <clears throat> watching, watching the planes come and everything, um there was this feeling about the attackers. How did they do it? you know, And then <clears throat> the more I studied it, the more I realized these guys had a perfect storm. everything went right for them, and many times they were actually found out because they weren't great plotters running, but nobody expected anything like this.. Um, they were particularly caught a lot when they were learning how to fly planes. You got 27, I think it was 27 uh, guys from Saudi Arabia traveling around the US learning how to fly. Um, and they got away with it because nobody really expected ending like this. And that's part of the plot too.
0: Wow, wow, it's, it's so refreshing. It- you, know, you, you this book is coming out at the most opportune time, 20 years after 9-11, 20th anniversary. And from what you've been telling me as your experience and your experience of friends, um, is that New York has been in a state of PTSD. That, that the, the trauma was so intense that people just couldn't deal with it. I, I remember myself, there was a movie, can't remember the name of it, but it came out three years after 9-11. I, I'm not gonna go see that. It's too raw it's too raw and if there was a story it may have been maybe a little too cliched and the, and the heroes and the, that are that have no faults um here you are representing and presenting new york and new yorkers in its truest form with some rough edges and that's just the way we are we're all flawed characters um yeah. but it's perfect that you're bringing this out on the 20th anniversary i think we're all now ready to experience what it real what really happened and heal from it as well.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way. And if the book does anything, you know, I think uh, it would be if it helps in some way some of the families to read it and to be able to summon up their memories and to bring bring some peace, you know, bring a little bit of peace. That's, that would be, that's my, uh, that was always my objective with the book. Um, Apart from, you know, telling a good story about it. You know, I come from a, a, a story background, you know, where I grew up in Ireland, everyone told stories. You went into a bar and there were storytellers and you would actually stand next to people on, because they had a great sense of humor or they had a great sense of depth. And that's what I was trying to bring to this too, just a sense of story and a sense of this flawed man, Jimmy Murphy going about his business, trying to come to terms with what had happened to his son and why was he down there 30 minutes beforehand and His superiors are saying, don't worry about it. It's a matter of national security. But because of his experience in Nam, it's like, don't believe anyone. It's like, there's there's something happened with my son. And the deeper he gets into it, the more it seems that his son is very flawed too. And is he taking a risk about destroying his family by finding out the full story? Uh, but can he leave the f- leave without knowing what the full story is? And if word leaks out about some of the things he's discovering about his son, will that uh, make his son seem worse in people's eyes? Or is it better to find out the full truth of what happened and then take the good and the bad with it? And That's what the story is about too, is if you lay everything bare, then there you are, and you've discovered something about life in all its
0: flawed majesty. Nice, nice. Wow, well, the mystery deepens. Uh, this is a mystery that we don't wanna to give too much away to uh, <laughs> our listeners here, but we hope we've uh, opened up the door and um, we do uh, hope that after listening to this interview that uh, you take a look at, at Larry's new novel, Rockaway Blue, It's available now through our website, as well as any major retailer. It was a pleasure talking with you, Larry. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and sharing your insights on your novel.
1: Ah, It's been a pleasure. It's actually good to to talk about it. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about it a bit more because I feel lighter in a certain sense when I do, because when you're writing a novel, it's like it's it's all inside you and it's it's time to let it go. And uh, that's a, a good way to go.
0: That's cool. It's, it's like having a kid and letting them out into the world. Your characters are now in, out into the world. Yeah. Jimmy Murphy is out there. <laughs> He's out there now. He's out there. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you, Larry. It was, it was great talking with you. That was Larry Kerwin, author of the new book, Rockaway Blue, a novel. If you'd like to purchase Larry's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website which is cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in Europe, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Listen to Larry on a SiriusXM radio show, Celtic Crush, as well as as many songs as lead singer of the rock band Black 47. We close this episode with another song from the Black 47 album, New Yorktown, entitled Orphan of the Storm.
2: off the Black Academy, got a dream in your heart, though it's down in your boots, got a hundred quid in your pocket and a couple of bad dresses in Woodside and the Bronx, and you're feeling like a fist in a glove, with the other hot shows in the gang. some are right some are running from God and man, and you drink to tell the memory. Gang, a man looks at you, respecting his eyes. He knows you'd work until you're Because there's a black rage in the way inside you. You'd watch the war, son, before you'd ever give up. And at night you're like a Thinking of her with another man But she'll never take your dreams away That's not why you come To the canyon streets of New York City An orphan of the storm Only went back once. You just had to be sure. Kindness in her eyes. You saw only pity there. So drink up your Jameson's whiskey, wash it down with pints. Obliteration on the rocks. Then out of here in the dawn's. Um, oh. Think of her anymore. Well, maybe on a rainy Sunday night. You're the gang of man yourself now. Got a new job down to trades. never all thing's gonna be alright. Then they blew you to sweet Jesus on that grand September day. Not a cloud on your horizon, your heart finally. But they couldn't take your dreams away. They were not for sale alone. On the shattered streets of New York City, this orphan has finally come home. You come home. You come home.